0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest voxcasting either side of the breach. Big game hunting is a popular sport on both sides of the breach. But for those who can afford it, Malifaux offers far more dangerous and exotic hunting opportunities than Earthside. Lord Justin Cooper is one of the most celebrated huntsmen of his generation. And is no stranger to dangerous game. But even Lord Cooper is not invincible. I hope you enjoy Cry Havoc right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Bree Side Broadcast is brought to you by Harold Fitzroy's hunting and guiding services. Anyone can shoot a lion or an endangered rhinoceros but only truly exceptional hunters have what it takes to bag a slate-ridge mauler or a saber-toothed Cerberus. Contact Mr. Fitzroyce today to test your mettle against the most vicious beasts either side of the breach.
1: "'Cry Havoc,' by Graham Stevenson. "'Happy birthday, sir,' exclaimed Poultice. "'Lord Justin Cooper regarded the twitching basket with reservation. "'He noted that the wicker was not in the least bit wine or brandy-shaped, "'nor did it appear to have a recognizable caliber, "'but he dutifully lifted the cloth cover, "'as it would not do to seem ungrateful to one's men. "'He was immediately assailed by two small furry missiles, "'one lashed his mouth around his outstretched hand, the other went for his boot. Both growled furiously and with enthusiasm, play-fighting his limbs with a gusto that far exceeded their capabilities. "'The purest of breeds, sir,' Poltis was saying. "'Their lineage can be traced all the way to Belgium, "'to the very St. Hubert Monastery itself, I dare say.' Cooper looked down at the bloodhound pup, gnawing and slobbering on his index finger. The huge ears and drooping chops were already forming. The red coat was smooth and burr-free." and the pup had that heavy-boned and muscular stance characteristic of the breed. More than that, his eyes were bright and fearless as he subdued Cooper's finger, an indication of the powerful animal he would become. Despite his usual reserve, Cooper had to smile. "'I shall name you, Oola,' he said to the pup, drawing a mutter of approval from the watching crowd. "'And you,' he said to the other, who had lost interest in Cooper's unresponsive boot— and was sniffing her way along the ground in pursuit of a beetle. I shall name Artemis. There was another soft rumble of agreement, and pleasure from the assemblage. Capital names, very suitable. They will serve you well, sir, Poultice said. Indeed they will. Excellent examples of their breed. Thank you, Poultice. The other man retreated to the general crowd, glowing with praise. The tent was full to groaning with associates and well-wishers, perhaps a dozen fellow hunters and members of the Explorer Society, and spilling out behind them into the surrounding grounds, their attendants, servants, and the like. Being the founder of the organization, and held in such high esteem both as a hunter and a gentleman, Lord Cooper's gatherings were always well attended by the most notable of guests, such as Colonel Bluefield who had one side of his face reduced to a rasher of bacon by a lion in the Kenya colony, but nevertheless kept his feet and killed it with a bayonet. Or Mrs. Peregrine Darling, notable for her skill with a forty-four caliber Henry repeating rifle. An unknown fellow stepped forward from the throng, a long box in his arms. He was well-groomed and dressed, but had an air of deference about him that told Cooper he was a messenger. "'Whose man are you?' he asked as the skinny newcomer stopped at the edge of the tiger rug under Cooper's chair. "'My name is Sullivan Brodie. "'I bring a gift from the Earl Peter Clancy of Sunderland, "'with well-wishes and fond remembrance on the occasion of Lord Cooper's birthday,' the man said with a bow. "'This was interesting. "'Low comments rippled through the crowd. "'The Earl of Sunderland was a powerful industrialist in England, "'and supposedly had the ear of the king himself.' If the gift was anywhere near as esteemed as its patron, this was high praise indeed for Lord Cooper. Cooper accepted the heavy mosquito box, oiled to a high shine, and set it across his knees to open it while a servant ushered away the yipping puppies. The polite interest turned into loud roars of congratulation as Cooper lifted out a customized 577 Nitro Express Holland and Holland single-shot hunting rifle. It was an exquisite piece, Carefully balanced, walnut stocked, and with a trigger guard, fence, and barrel, all silver-plated and engraved. He broke the action open and peered down the barrel, machined to perfection. Bravo, churned the eager crowd. Handsomely done. A true huntsman's weapon for a true huntsman. You'll convey my profound thanks and my very best regards to Earl Clancy, Cooper said to the waiting Brody. Please assure him his gift is one of the finest I have ever had the good fortune to receive, and that were he ever inclined to test its metal in the grounds of my estate, it would be my honour to receive him. More rumblings and slappings of thighs, and the earl's man bowed his way out of the tent. Even with the distraction of the animated crowd and the beautiful firearm in his hands, Goober had noticed that an old associate of his, Harold Fitzroyce, was grinning fit to burst. He had one hand over his face, already more than halfway obscured by his walrus moustache, and appeared to be giggling with delight. Fitzroyce, Cooper called, you seem more pleased than most with Earl Clancy's gift. Apologies, my lord, but it could not have come at a better time. Oh I too have a gift for you, sir. Only this one isn't so easily presented. Fitzroyce laughed, and I dare say it would be a very devil to rap. There was general laughter, as the crowd began to cotton on to the man's meaning. Fitzroyce was notorious for arranging exotic hunts, and had a network of trackers and poachers whose sole task it was to find some of the strangest and rarest beasts to serve as trophies for the discerning hunter. Am I to understand you've organized an excursion on my behalf? You are, sir. I have everything set up for you in the quarantine zone. An excited murmur filled the tent, and Cooper felt his own pulse respond to the thought of a new opponent, a new kill. Then we shall go directly, he said, and got to his feet. At his back, two shaggy hulks rose in tandem, Fatagi huntsmen from Ivanavo, Russia. They had been Cooper's companions ever since an expedition to hunt down bears on the Kamchatka Peninsula, where they had led him to a phenomenal specimen, a huge bear that stood eleven feet tall and took eight shots to drop. The men seemed half bears themselves. Heavy set hairy and garbed in animal furs, with barely a dozen words of English between them. They shared his passion for the hunt, however, and this gave them an understanding that went beyond language. "'Assemble my trackers,' he said. "'Let us give the Earl's gift a worthy blooding.' The camp began to swarm like an anthill. The expedition into the quarantine zone was larger than Cooper would normally have permitted, But as it was his birthday, there was an understandably large number of well-wishers, keen to see him make use of his new rifle. The ruins deadened the spread of sound or scent far better than a savannah, or even a forest would, so it gave scant advantage to his prey. Just what he was facing became foremost in his mind as they rounded a wall of black brick, and came upon a small plaza sporting a tall iron cage. The spectacle of such a large quarry would have been impressive— but the twisted and empty cage with the scattering of dead manservants around it was far more so. "'Great Scott!' Fitzroyce exclaimed, running forward. "'The beast has escaped!' Rather than causing frustration or alarm, this only heightened Cooper's anticipation. He fingered the bent bars and extracted a tuft of matted brown fur, while Fitzroyce ran about, shouting orders to search the area and pick up the animals' tracks. They were not difficult to find. Bear, ventured Poltis crouched over a broad, five-clawed bloodprint on a flagstone. Too large, Cooper counted, seeing another track in soil further on. The track was driven deep into the earth by a tremendous weight. Fitzroyce came up breathlessly. I'm most dreadfully sorry, my lord. The confounded beast got free before I had a chance to show it to you. Cooper waved him silent. On the contrary, my dear fellow, this only adds to the game. As the hunters appeared at his side, Warren had the Earl's rifle over his shoulder and wordlessly handed it to Lord Cooper. Let us begin. The creature had not gone far. They came up on it in an alley, several hundred yards from the plaza, crunching on the upper torso of a luckless manservant. Superficially, it resembled a bear, but it was far too large and muscular. It had six limbs four of which were engaged in pulling apart the manservant's remains, tusk-like spines projected through its thick brown fur, each as long as a man's forearm, a slate-ridge mauler. "'What a tremendous beast!' Cooper murmured, as he took the safety off his new rifle. "'Well done indeed, Fitzroyce. You've exceeded yourself. "'I don't know how you managed to capture the brute in the first place.' Not without difficulty, sir, admitted Fitzroyce with some modesty. Quiet now. Tied with the old gift through its paces. Cuba crept forward, leaving the dozen or so associates and trackers behind, as was his privilege to claim the beast's hide for his own. The group watched with mixed excitement and anxiety, as the hunter made his way along the alley, closing the distance with slow and measured steps, so as not to disturb the rubble. Cooper's pulse was racing now, as it always did in the anticipatory moments before a kill. The Holland and Holland came up slowly, its gleaming stock set against his shoulder, in preparation for the impressive kick of a 577 shell. The beast's anatomy was unknown to him. Its torso was immense, and no doubt well armoured, so he had settled on a headshot. The eye socket, or through the soft palate of the mauler's mouth, should it be so obliging as to roar at his approach. The heavy slug would have little difficulty in penetrating bone. He had, after all, downed bull elephants through the bony plates of their skulls with just such a weapon. Finally, the mauler noticed his approach. It reared on its hind legs to peer at him, ribbons of meat hanging from its jaws. Cooper's advance paused involuntarily. It was far larger than even he had anticipated, surely fifteen feet in height. Part of his mind was already trying to figure out just where the gigantic head was going to be mounted back at Ashford Estate while he drew a bead along the polished virgin barrel, drawing the rifle tight against himself, embracing his legs for the inevitable recoil. Without ceremonial display, the mauler dropped and charged him. Cooper's world shrank to the fifty yards between the beast and him, to the determined panting and rumble of its approach, to the first tinges of its carrion stink. At 30 yards, he had his target and took a final breath, held it. At 20 yards, he squeezed the trigger slowly. At 10 yards, the rifle gave a dry and impotent click. The rest was disjointed. Screaming, perhaps his own, perhaps that of his audience. The crackle of rifle fire and thudding blows to his chest and abdomen. He saw a huge, red-rimmed eye, felt hot breath against his bare skin. Grinding bone and splintering wood. He felt the mauler jerking its head to the left, throwing him bodily through the air, with both his arms in the twisted ruin of the earl's rifle still in its mouth. A final stunning impact. Then, blackness. Time passed. But the extent of its passage went unnoticed and unmeasured. Day or night, alive or dead, it was impossible to tell. Faces swam out of the darkness. Voices echoed inside his head, but he could not recognize the features, could not understand the words. Slowly he began to discern a cycle, when for a time it was less grey, followed by a time when there were no ghosts to torment him. It finally crystallized into pale dawns and black nights, and he understood on some level that he had survived. The ghosts gradually reformed into people Wilberforce, his steward, Fitzroyce, his loyal Vitagi, others he did not know who had kind but concerned faces, and who returned frequently to frown at him doctors, surgeons. Gradually his world dilated further, and he began to take in his surroundings. Firstly, his own body it ached abominably and the slightest effort left him grey with exhaustion. The thin, starched sheet he'd lay under him may as well have been a ton of fallen masonry for all the success he'd had in trying to move under it. The bed he lay in was his own. He recognised the carved corner posts as those he purchased from a merchant in Florence. as was the room. He'd commissioned Walter Crane to provide the tiger and long grass motif for his bedroom wallpaper, and looking at it now made his trigger finger itch. "'so he was back in Malifaux City, at Ashford Estate. "'That gave him some comfort at least, "'although the array of glass bottles filled with clear, amber and ruby liquid "'hanging from stands at his side did not, "'nor the snaking rubber tubes that vanished beneath his immovable bedsheet. "'The door connecting to his servants' quarters opened, and Fitzroy stepped through. "'He had a newspaper folded under his arm, and humming softly under his breath.' "'made his way to the high-backed wing-chair in the bay window "'in a manner that suggested he'd been following this routine for some time. "'His friend had just about settled down with the paper when Cooper spoke. "'Water.' Fitzroyce almost swallowed his moustache in surprise, "'but hurried to comply, "'and gingerly poured a bit of water into his dry mouth "'from the jug and glass at his bedside. "'My Lord Cooper, how do you feel?' Fitzroyce asked.' as soon as he felt it prudent. Cooper had no time for platitudes. How long? Eight days, sir. We thought you might have been partially awake yesterday. At least your eyes were open. We did not reply when we spoke to you. Cooper absorbed it slowly. The rifle, he said at length. Vizorce's expression hardened, and he looked like there was bitter news to be delivered. It was no misfire, sir. We retrieved the weapon, and despite the damage it was quite clear. The firing pin had been sabotaged. Cooper was already wearied by this short exchange, but he had to know the rest, and he fixed his subordinate with a glare. Yovatagi were able to retrieve the messenger, Mr. Brody, before he left the camp. As it turns out, during the subsequent inquiries it came to light that Captain Burridge had been to Sunderland Castle and had met the Earl and more importantly Mr. Brody, a fat, jovial man, and really nothing like the scoundrel that delivered the Earl's rifle. Further questioning proved fruitful. Before the impostor expired, he admitted that his real name was Silas Everidge, and that he had been tasked with intercepting the real Mr. Brody to dispose of him and commit the aforementioned sabotage on the gifted rifle. Fitzroy spooled uncomfortably at his collar, but Cooper knew what was coming next. The Vatagi was successful in prying the name of Mr. Evridge's employer from him. Before the end, they were very thorough. The beast man, Cooper croaked. Indeed, sir, Marcus was the assailant named. There was no love lost between Lord Cooper and the elusive master of beasts. Rumors and warning had been circulating since Cooper's first arrival in Malafou, of Marcus's virulent disapproval of his profession and activities and he knew it was only a matter of time before they came into conflict. With the arrival of the Earl of Sunderland's man and his notable present, in time for Cooper's birthday celebration, it would have been too sweet an opportunity for him to resist. What better come comeuppance for a notorious hunter than to die at the hands of the very beast he sought to slay? "'The damage?' he asked. Fitzroy's made a show of getting a doctor. Protesting wasn't really his field of expertise— but Cooper's baleful glare drew out the truth. The mauler took your arms, he said eventually. Your body was badly gored, and when it threw against the wall, it smashed your left leg, and your skull took a frightful knock. The doctors had to remove much of, of what was left of your injured limbs due to gangrene and a number of your inner vitals. He indicated the hanging rubber tubes and glass bottles. They've been keeping you fed and watered through pipes. It's astonishing you've recovered this far, actually. Vizorius tried to sound jaunty, touching his forehead. They even put a steel plate in your skull where the fall broke it. Always knew you were hard-headed, sir, but I say... Cooper looked down, and for the first time realised how empty the bed seemed, other than the central hump of his torso. He could still feel his limbs, but they were gone now and with them all the things that he loved best, hunting through grassland and forest, across plain and prairie, the weight of a rifle in his hands, the wild land under his boots. He brooded. Was that it, then? Was that to be the end of Lord Justin Cooper, gentleman hunter and founder of the Explorer Society? A useless stump in an empty manor, living out his last days in ignominy, He would have balled his fists, if he still had them.
0: Leave me,
1: he snarled. Fitzroyce bowed and left him to his thoughts. Some days passed, and Cooper's mood grew darker as the true extent of his remaining capabilities became clear. He had always been fiercely independent, and each new day brought fresh humiliations to be heaped upon him. Spoon feedings, dressing changes, bed baths. The doctors congregated frequently at first, producing his stumps, muttering about redirected blood flow and suture grouping, poring over what was left of his body with barely a thought for the man that was trapped within it. The nurses were worse, professional smiles and professional detachment, breezy and cheerful and vacuous. They continued to tend their helpless charge long after the doctors had lost interest, in much the same way as the maid continued to dust and polish the other useless ornaments of the house. His respites came in the form of Fitzroy's poultice and his vitagi. He still regarded him as the man he had been before this calamity, and his bloodhound pups, who loved him unconditionally, whether he could pat them or not. Something Fitzroyce had said about the metal plate in his head would not leave him. The phrase lodged in his subconscious, and when it had germinated into a hope, he called his most trusted attendants together for a proposition. They gathered one evening in his bedroom. A fire had been lit, even though it was barely autumn. Goober felt more vulnerable to the bite of cold since his accident. The pups loved it, however, and were both draped over his remaining leg soaking up the warmth from the fireplace while his companions waited for him to speak. As it is now apparent that my limbs are not growing back, he began, to dutiful chuckles, I have decided that I must seek outside assistance in regaining my mobility. There is no question of remaining like this. No, indeed, agreed Poultice. If my skull can be rebuilt with steel, why not the rest of me? We are in the age of technology, after all. Surely there is an artisan who could give me back the life I had before. Pulte's eyes widened. Victor Ramos, he blurted. My sister's beau has a cousin with very good connections in the MNSU who... That oaf, Cooper snapped. You would have me clanking and steaming about like a boiling kettle. I'd sooner you took off my remaining leg and be done with it. They fell silent for a moment. ''Well,'' began Fitzroyce cautiously, ''I may know of another, a maestro with machinery, no doubt, though he is a bit of a recluse. There is no telling that he would accept, sir.'' ''If he is as good as your word, Fitzroyce, then money is no object. Find him and bring him here.'' Cooper instructed him to make all the necessary introductions and to have him brought to Ashford Estate as soon as possible. If this craftsman could be persuaded to give him even a fraction of the mobility afforded to those lethal mechanical dancers, even to allow him to hold a rifle again, it would be worth any price. While Fitzroyce was about his duties, Cooper tasked poultice with something more his speed, to arrange an audience with Gretchen Janus. She arrived within the week and masked her shock at his diminished appearance well ever the diplomat. He sent Wilberforce down to the kitchen for refreshments to give them privacy and offered her a seat. I was greatly saddened to hear of your accident, Justin, she said. As was I, he commented dryly. There's no small thing to regain consciousness and find oneself half the man he was before. You must forgive the tardiness of my visit, but I was in the Westlands, "'An expedition to the stone tombs. "'I only returned to the city very recently. "'Your man Poultice found me the day I arrived "'and gave me the dreadful news.' "'Quite all right. "'In fact, that's partly why I asked you to come.' "'She waited for him to elaborate. "'The box by your elbow,' he prompted. "'She gave it a curious look, then opened it. "'The society key. "'He'd had Wilberforce dig it out earlier in the day.' In my present condition, I find my ability to lead the society is somewhat compromised. I'm taking steps to remedy the situation, but it may take some time and there is no guarantee of success. Surely when your strength has returned, you will be able to resume your duties, she argued. But he had seen her expression when she first saw the key, and knew he had made the right decision. It is more than that, as I think we both know. My proclivities and the purpose of the Explorer Society have diverged as of late. I shall retain my membership, of course, and the position of seniority, but I feel that you are far better suited to guide us forward. You understand the central premise of pushing back the veil of the unknown and dividing the cultural richness of those new lands to augment our own. To his satisfaction, Gretchen closed the box and placed it on her lap. You are very kind to say so, Lord Cooper. I humbly accept your proposal. Together you and I can unravel the mysteries of both worlds. Good. It's settled then. I'm certain you'll prove most efficacious, Cooper said. And you, she asked. These are remedial steps you mentioned. Cooper offered a grim smile. All in good time, my dear. All in good time. A few days after Gresham's visit, Fitzroyce brought him the artisan. He seemed humble enough at first. An old and slightly diminished man in unassuming garb, with clipped grey hair around a high crown. When he looked closer, however, Cooper saw the deep intelligence in his eyes, and the long, skilful fingers folded politely across his middle. Mr. Vincenzo Campagnola, Wilberforce announced. Your servant, sir. The man bowed. I am exceedingly grateful to you for accepting my invitation, Mr. Campagnolo, Cooper responded. You are a tough man to find. Campagnolo feigned a smile and nodded. One can get lost in one's work. Yes, of course, Cooper agreed. My good man, Harold here, it's only much of your craftsmanship. A maestro of machinery, he says. Fitzroyce nearly blushed. It was clear from the artisan's expression that he'd already guessed Cooper's intent. And how could he not? A limbless man abed, confessing his admiration for his capabilities, it was the most obvious thing in the world. But so much the better. Cooper was eager for the man's answer. Mechanisms, Campagnolo said. The illusion of life, but wholly artificial. Not the fusion of flesh and steel. He feels such a fusion would be impossible. "'On the contrary, sir,' Campagnolo said with a flash of a smile, there and gone in the blink of an eye. His long fingers rippled. "'Such an undertaking would represent a higher art form, a marriage of man and machine, and be superior to both.' Cooper grinned. "'Then, sir, I press upon you to accept a commission.' "'A most intriguing proposal,' Campagnolo said.' "'I myself know something of you, Lord Cooper. "'If the many impressive mounted heads and trophies "'are an indication of your greatest passion, "'then this work will require not only a return of your locomotive faculties, "'but an augmentation of your physicality, "'an augmentation of sufficient precision "'that you may rely unthinkingly upon the instincts your brain already possess "'to cure in the belief that your new body will express them.' "'Cooper agreed wholeheartedly. Much depended on the final second of a hunt, when body and mind had to be in perfect unison to bring down the charging prize and avert calamity. There was no greater example of that belief than his present predicament. "'I believe this fusion you seek may be achieved,' Campanulo said. "'I confess that the proposition to remake a living man using my skills appeals to me greatly. I warn you, however, that this goal cannot be attained quickly, nor without great cost.' I assure you that my finances are considerable. I will meet your price, whatever it may be. A handsome offer, my lord. Though I speak not so much of the scrip as much as the labour. Campagnolo flashed another of his tiny, fleeting smiles. His teeth were very small and very white. I speak, sir, of the art of creation. A body fit for a hunter such as yourself cannot simply be hammered out of iron plate. We're not building a steam shovel for their union. Cooper snorted. "Indeed not. Idiots. We must find the shapes in the steel, the artist continued, his long fingers moving again. It must be more than articulation and tensile strength. We must find the grace, the precision. We must form a bond, a perfect bond, between the old and the new, if either are to function. All of this takes trial, error, and above all time. If you can make me the man I was, Cooper said, I will do anything you say. I will do that and more, Campanulo said. I will make you better. Despite their auspicious first meeting, progress over the following months was infuriatingly slow for Cooper. He had approved the conversion of the second library into a laboratory and workshop for Campagnolo's use, along with adjoining private quarters, and the man had begun his preparations. Wagons began to arrive at Ashford Estate, and more wagons, and more again. Equipment of every description was unloaded and manhandled into the second library. Inscrutable devices of every conceivable design, as well as a bewildering array of technical equipment, lathes, presses, and the like. Bills began to flood in from mechanical distributors and factories all over Malifaux, but Cooper never doubted the capabilities of his new associate, and only wished for some sign of progress beyond his inexorably shrinking fortunes. There were weeks of measurements and plaster mould-making of Cooper's body. Campagnola wanted to understand the canvas upon which he would paint. The Explorer Society alumnus bore it with as much patience as he could muster. Blueprints were beginning to appear on the walls of the library, and each time Cooper was wheeled down there on a gurney, it seemed fuller with technical equipment than the last. These blueprints, drawn in a small and exact hand, were the first real expression of what Cooper one day hoped to see wrought in metal. He was pleased that the designs were functional, robust and pragmatic-looking, having harbored quiet reservations about being presented with the limbs of a steel ballerina to be affixed onto his thick, masculine torso. When confided in, Campagnolo had laughed and said, No, my friend. We are not making a dancer. We are making a predator. There will be beauty, but in function rather than form. Around this time, the artisan began talking about an engine, a powerhouse strong enough to sustain both Cooper's vitality and the augmented body that would contain it. An explosive flurry of blueprints was followed by a period of precise construction, the building of tiny and exceedingly complex devices, that would not have looked out of place in a very accurate timepiece. These components were gradually attached to one another, until a mechanism was built, about the size of a melon, and dense with moving parts. Once complete, Cooper was privy to an informal activation ceremony, where Campagnolo inserted a glass vial, holding a row of sparkling crystals that shone with a powerful inner radiance. He had seen such crystals before. stones. The device came to life immediately, but there was no hissing or puffing, no rude smoke or mechanical noise. The device was almost entirely soundless, and worked with ceaseless, internalized motion, glistening with light lubricating oil. It seemed both sleek and potent at once. The heart of a warrior, Campagnolo said. Other, less immediately obvious devices followed suit. Strange leathery bags, pumps— armfuls of glistening rubber tube, Cooper gave up asking the identities of each and satisfied himself with Campagnolo's explanation that while enough of his vitals had survived the mauling to sustain life in its present form, they would be woefully insufficient for a full-limbed and vigorous man. Surgeries began soon after. His body cavity was opened repeatedly to allow the implanting of these new devices in preparation for the articulated limbs that would follow. And while his convalescence from each operation seemed never-ending, he did begin to feel stronger and more capable with each recovery. Whatever these mechanisms were, they were working. Winter had come and gone at Ashford Estate by the time Cooper saw the first of the prototype limbs that Campagnolo was building. Another explosion of blueprints had covered the walls of the library, incongruously still referred to by that name, despite looking more like a combined hospital and factory. More surgeries followed. Campagnolo assured him that these would be the last of the laborious procedures, and were concerned with reinforcing his torso and joints, as well as fixing sockets at the shoulders and left hip for the limbs that would eventually be fitted to his trunk. These were the worst times for Cooper. Weeks of confusion and murky, drug smothered pain, while his battered body had cunningly shaped steel components bolted to his skeleton. Due to the severity of these operations, they had to be staggered to provide time to heal, and it was autumn once again before Cooper was ready for the next stage. He spent much of the time between surgeries with his dogs, Artemis and Euler. They had grown quickly, and were already exceptionally large for their breed, although they still had that ungainly manner associated with youth. Their loyalty rivaled that of his Vitagi, and their joyful and riotous behavior when allowed to visit him was a great comfort. He longed to take them hunting, to track boar and deer through the woods, to be free of this flesh prison. Their energy and exuberance were promises of what he too one day could enjoy again. Fitzroyce had secured a very reputable trainer, and the dogs were shaping up to be excellent hunting companions, That what they seemed to enjoy most was lolling shamelessly across him at night, fast asleep and twitching while in pursuit of a dreamed rabbit. At long last came the time Cooper had been looking forward to the most, Campagnolo had been working on a fully articulated leg, and finally decreed that he was ready for initial trials. The process of attachment was painless, but it took his brain some time to get used to the sensation of having a real leg instead of a phantom limb. The first tests were made from Cooper's gurney. Interminable hours of Campagnolo's instructions. Biver the ankle forward. Good. Now back. Good. Again. Good. Now the knee, good. The absence of sensation was extremely strange. This test limb had no pressure senses, and so he felt nothing, and had to affirm visually that the leg was doing what his brain told it to. The responses were initially sluggish and faltering, but after some tweaking from the artisan and practice from Cooper, they became more assured. When can I walk? he demanded. When you have two legs, was the brusque reply. "'I have two legs,' he persisted. "'This is not a leg,' Campagnolo said, waving his screwdriver at the metal limb. "'This is a stick, a post. "'But with refinement it may serve as a precursor to a prototype "'which eventually we may venture to call a leg.' Huber knew he was correct, but it had been close to two years since his accident, 2 years of immobility and dependence, "'when liberty and individuality were now so close.' Time crawled on, and the day finally came when Campagnolo had Cooper's gurney tilted up to a forty-five-degree angle, with a burly huntsman on either side to hold him. On the artisan's signal, they hoisted Cooper upright and onto his feet. One flash, the other steel. Now walk, the artisan said. Cooper's head swam. He hadn't been fully upright in so long he seemed terrifyingly high off the ground, and extremely unstable. But this was the moment he'd been dreaming of for so long that his fear was quickly overcome with exhilaration. He fell flat on his face, so abruptly and so quickly that neither of the Vitagi reacted in time to catch him. Good, Campagnolo said with a nod. This is progress. Now we pick him up and try again. Cuba fell and fell again, trying to shuffle the distance he would have covered in a single stride before the mauler, but the Vitagi were ready each time they caught him and propped him up for another go. Cooper persevered, and his balance gradually improved. So too did the complexity of the engineering, and by the following spring Campagnolo had worked through a half-dozen refined iterations, and Cooper was able to walk around unaided on his replacement leg, which now had a fully working knee and ankle joint, and a foot that matched his own in dimensions. As the weather warmed and the ice and snow vanished, Cooper began to venture outside. At first he stayed within the immediate grounds of the estate, plodding slowly and heavily up and down the south lawn, followed by his dogs and the watchful Vitagi. The pleasure of being outside with the wind against his face again was indescribable. He was also pleased that there was no joint pain, and despite the long, long months of incarceration and inactivity, he already appeared to have deep reserves of stamina. Ashford Estate was set on the edge of the quarantine zone. The grounds were nowhere near as expansive as his estates back on England or Africa, no more than six or seven acres of grass, with a small orchard sporting oranges and lemons. But to Cooper, there were an exciting new wilderness to be explored. Before he knew it, the conscious limp in his gait had vanished, and both legs worked in unison to overcome the terrain. Despite various rubber coatings on the sole of his machine leg, Traction was frequently a problem, especially over rough scree and gravel. Finally Campagnolo fitted splaying claws to the toes, sharp and more than strong enough to gain purchase even on sheer rock. Cooper rather liked how they'd been styled on the clawed foot of the beast that had deprived him of his original leg. It seemed most apt. Campagnolo had also fitted Cooper with arms, though these were devoid of articulation designed purely to keep his sense of balance and momentum correct while he learned to walk again. And soon enough, it was time for more suitable replacements. Many smashed cups and split lips followed, despite the artisan's protests. Goober had sworn to himself that the day he got his arms back would be the last he spent like a huge, moustached baby while being spoon-fed his meals, and he was determined to keep his word. His initially clumsy, spasmodic motions knocked over plates and cups, bent spoons and threw gobbets of food over himself and his surroundings without bias, but he would not be dissuaded, and eventually willpower and growing hunger triumphed. That evening's supper of semolina, buttered toast and spiced brandy, tasted like victory. By the summer he was finally ready to hunt. Campagnolo had redeveloped his arms a dozen times, with each new variant stronger and more dexterous than the last, to the point where he felt he could handle a gun again. The first time, Fitzroyce brought him a Spencer-repeating carbine and a box of ammunition from his gun cabinet, and they went out together to set up some stationary targets on the south lawn. Just glass bottles and clay jugs, but it felt so good to be standing under his own power and squinting down the iron sights of a rifle again that it was all he could do not to laugh. The rifle only fired 56, 56 rimfire cartridges, a comparatively light load to what he was used to when hunting big game. It was abnormally still in his grip. The recoil against his shoulder went unnoticed, and it wasn't long before he was smashing every bottle and jug in turn at a hundred, then two hundred paces. A few days later, Fitzroy's resupplied their makeshift firing range at three hundred paces, with more bottles and a forty four Winchester. Cooper picked off every bottle, firing faster and more accurately than he could have as a normal man, and with no recoil to speak of. The .44-40 Winchester cartridges packed much more of a punch. He knew this from memory, but the gun's recoil was almost non-existent in the grip of his new steel limbs, and his aim never wavered once. "'Bring me a real gun,' he said. Fitzroy's came back with a Sharp's 1874 rifle, loaded with 50 to 140 cartridge, a long range cannon designed for felling bison with a single shot. Cooper had his eye back by now, and he fired off a dozen rounds without a single miss at the full length of the south lawn, almost 600 paces. The recoil was a trifling matter, an inconvenience, no match for the heavy steel insulation of his new body. Cooper regarded the heavy rifle thoughtfully. Even at the height of his physical prowess, he'd come home from safaris bruised and aching from firing a rifle as powerful as this. But now, possibilities began to form in his mind. "'I need a moving target,' he told Fitzroyce. "'We're a bit early for the rutting season, but perhaps we could find you an impressive stag,' suggested his colleague. "'I have holes filled with antlers already.' Cooper said. A bear, then? An eminently stupid animal. I want something challenging. Something cunning. Fitzroy chewed his lip, then snickered. If it's cunning you're after, I should have a word with the scrawny fellow that keeps stealing the silverware from my mother-in-law's cottage. Blyder had the temerity to wave at me the last time as he made off over the fence. Of course, the Guild have been alerted, but what can they do, really? Cooper thought it over. Offer him two thousand scrip, he said. Offer, I beg your pardon, my lord. Two thousand to run, Cooper clarified. I'll set him a boundary, say one thousand yards. I'll have only one cartridge, a single shot. If he reaches the boundary or I miss, the money is his to keep. Fitzroy's mouth was working, but no sound was coming out. Good, Cooper nodded. You handle the proposition. I'll expect his answer on the morrow. As it turned out, the man wasn't fast enough. It also opened up a whole new kind of hunting that Cooper had never considered before, and another excursion was organized, and then another. In a frontier world like Malifaux, everything was for sale, even life. Many were drawn to the new world with the promise of a better future, or a chance to shuck off the past. Unfortunately, for most, it was a fool's hope. Misfortune and destitution often followed close behind, and for every full belly, there were a hundred others that went empty. Gupa was rapidly discovering that no animal quite equaled the resource and cunning of a man. And it was in those desperate moments when life hung by a thread that a man, that any man, was at his most dangerous. They understood the rules, of course. They were to be hunted through a landscape of Lord Cooper's choosing, be it the ruins of malifaux's quarantine zone or a weirdwood forest. Were they to escape, or otherwise meet the conditions of the hunt, then their life was their own once more. The drunks and the fiends were poor sport, he soon found. But those with a secret hope were the ones that really got his blood up. Those who pushed themselves beyond their endurance then embraced their deepest animalistic guile in an effort to evade his pursuit. They were the most rewarding hunts of all. Paltese started to call them runaways, and Cooper saw no reason to correct him. While Campagnolo himself seemed unfazed by the practice, some within the Explorer Society felt it was uncultured, even barbaric. Cooper saw it as a viable commercial exchange. The Desperate always had something to sell. Besides, he was not above sparing a life had they led him a truly exhilarating chase. Over the following months, Cooper hunted. He hunted men through the crumbling spires and broken alleys of the quarantine zone, flushing them out with his faithful bloodhounds, now trained and fully adult trackers of the very highest quality. He was indefatigable. His remaining leg was strong and heavily muscled once more, his machine limbs and organs unrelenting in their pursuit. They truly became one among the ruins of that former civilization, a perfect alloy of man and machine, honed to razor's edge on the whetstone of human prey. These new limbs, he said one evening, after a particularly satisfying hunt. These enhancements, they are remarkable. And unfinished, Campanella replied from one of his many workstations tinkering. We are not done yet. And yet already I have surpassed what I thought was physically possible. I am more than I was before. Stronger. More accurate. And unfinished came the response again. I need a weapon that matches my capabilities, Cooper said. The rifles I have now are insufficient. It was true enough. Even the 600 Nitro Express rifle Poultice had procured for him felt like a cork gun where before just carrying such a weight for a single day would have exhausted him. The artisan looked up from his bewildering jumble of machinery, a glint in his eye. Soon enough, he said, I have foreseen this. It wasn't long before Cooper saw for himself Campagnolo's solution to his problem. A customized repeating rifle, the man explained one morning, pulling away an oilcloth to reveal the fearsome weapon influenced by the lever-action Winchester 1873 model, but bore to a far higher caliber, as befits your new stature. It takes a custom 950 Natural Express cartridge, which I am confident will provide satisfactory recoil and stopping power. Cooper lifted the huge gun, more than twice the mass of anything he'd handled before. Rather than being absurdly bulky, it felt comfortable and appropriate. The telescopic sight... It's an August Fiedler of Austria, but you can replace this with something of your own choosing, of course, Campagnolo continued. I also took the liberty of incorporating a retracting blade under the four-stock here. The rifle is cast from such heavy-gauge steel that it seemed remiss not to provide an enhancement that would benefit from your prodigious new strength. Of course, Cooper muttered absently, setting the giant cannon to his shoulder and sighting experimentally. One hundred rounds have been pressed already, with more on orders, so you should feel free to field test it immediately while I turn to other matters. And field test it, Cooper did. The weapon was astonishingly powerful. Quite apart from the deafening noise when discharged, the enlarged caliber rounds smashed through brick and steel with equal disregard and left melon-sized holes in everything they hit. No elephant, rhinoceros, or even a sleepbridge mauler would be able to withstand such a massive impact. Cooper immediately went on safari.
0: That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for the conclusion of Cry Havoc.